I prepared this message and reflected on the passage that we're going to be uh, working through this evening. I couldn't help but think that, you know, Jesus says a lot of difficult, a lot of challenging things in Scripture, doesn't he? Um, and some of these things that Jesus says are actually kind of formally referred to as hard sayings, the hard sayings of Jesus. And um, on one hand, they're referred to the hard saying, sayings of Jesus um, <clears throat> partly because they can be difficult to understand. But I think even more so they're referred to as the hard sayings of Jesus because they're difficult to swallow. They're difficult to receive. They're difficult to accept. Does that make sense? Um, many of these passages, these hard sayings, really set the tone for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. They set the tone for what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be uh, a Christian. And it turns out that our passage this evening is a continuation of these hard sayings. It's another kind of uh, collection of them in, in this, this one narrative moment in Luke's gospel. So let's just jump right into it. And I want to invite you to open your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 14 and to read with me starting at verse 25. We're going to be looking at verses 25 through 35. <clears throat> Luke records, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you all desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise... When he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen, church? Amen. This is God's word. Uh, these are Jesus' words, and Jesus' words in this passage are meant to bring us to a singular and utterly piercing realization, and that is that Jesus calls disciples, not enthusiasts. Jesus calls disciples, not enthusiasts. And if you don't see the difference yet, just keep following with me, keep tracking with me, and I think that you will. But my point is, and Jesus' point is, most importantly, that true relationship with him, true relationship with Jesus is committed not casual. You see, these hard sayings of Jesus completely undercut the kind of banal and superficial Christianity of the culture that we live in. And my hope is that each one of us would allow these words of Jesus to challenge our own hearts tonight, to cause us to really consider our discipleship to him. Amen? Let's look at verse 25. Let's get started. Luke opens up by saying, Now great crowds accompanied him, 
and Jesus turned and spoke to them or said to them. And so like with this simple opening statement, Luke is, you know, the gospel writers often do in their narratives, they, they paint a picture, they set a scene, the stage is set. Um, and we see that this particular account that is unfolding, uh, it occurs between Jesus and between great crowds. It's not the case that there's just kind of a band of people who have collected around Jesus. Um, it's not the case that there's a big crowd that has collected around Jesus. Luke's telling us that there are multiple great crowds that have assembled around him. They have accompanied him. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, um, he has, in Luke's words, set his face towards Jerusalem. He has, his gaze is fixed on Jerusalem because it's at Jerusalem that he will meet his fate, where he will encounter the cross where the great cosmic moment of reconciliation between God and man will occur. And so Jesus has shifted his gaze to Jerusalem and he's traveling from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south. And as he travels, all these great crowds begin to follow him. Does that make sense? And so there are multitudes of people. There are throngs of people. And in Luke's gospel and Matthew and Mark, many times, oftentimes, crowds are viewed as kind of neutral figures, neutral parties. Oftentimes we have Jesus grappling with the religious leaders, the Jewish establishment, and they're antagonistic toward him. They're viewed as the bad guys. Oftentimes we see Jesus uh, interacting with his disciples, and they're representative of those who have faith, who are walking with him, who are have entered into and are continuing on in relationship with him. But then there's the crowds. There's all these people that represent those who are still kind of on the sidelines and have not yet made a determining decision either for or against Jesus. Does that make sense? And so just as today people come to Jesus or consider Jesus with all kinds of different hopes and expectations and preconceptions or motives... It was the same way then. Jesus has been unfolding his ministry and uh, revealing his purposes, but all these great crowds are following him in this moment. And so he turns to them to clarify to them what it is that he's all about. So in order to eliminate misunderstandings, in order to kind of address misguided motives, in order to, to help properly calibrate their own expectations, Jesus turns and he speaks to all these people. Are you with me? His purpose is to clarify for all these people who will potentially be in relationship with him what relationship with him actually means, what relationship with him actually entails. And Jesus doesn't have any double standards. He doesn't, you know, turn to his disciples in private and say, hey, it's going to be really difficult, but then turn to all the people who have been, you know, accompanying him along the way and say, you know, I offer you eternal life. He doesn't do that. No, no, no. He, he offers the same message to everyone so that nobody is left hanging. Nobody is left questioning what he's all about. And so he does this in this passage by communicating costs of discipleship. So look with me at verse 26. Let's consider Jesus' words. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus starts by saying, if anyone comes to me. When he says this, he's emphasizing entrance into relationship with him. He's, he's speaking of the cost of coming to him. 
Um, you know, discipleship involves a starting point, but it also involves a journey, right? Um, relationship with Jesus involves a, a, a moment of, of entry into relationship, but then it involves a continuing of that relationship. And so Jesus here is referring to the cost of coming to him, the cost of entering into relationship with him. You see, um, saving faith is entry into relationship. It is the establishment of oneself as a disciple of Jesus. But that discipleship continues. It's ongoing. So Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own, what? Father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You know, <clears throat> I remember... Um, when I was an undergrad in, at Long Beach State, I was taking an English class to fulfill my you know, general ed requirements. And uh, I don't even remember what the lecture was about that day. All I remember was that my professor kind of made this, this cocky remark that, you know, the Bible, I read through the Bible one time, and, you know, there's crazy stuff in the Bible. I mean, Jesus says that if you want to be one of his followers, you actually have to hate people. You know, you have to hate your own family, and you have to hate your wife, and you have to hate your kids, and you have to hate yourself, and that's nonsense. Like, that makes no sense. That doesn't compute. And so, you know, Jesus, look, if you just read the Bible, he was an egomaniac, and therefore the Bible is all rubbish. What do you think about that? His word, he didn't understand. Thank you, Greg. Yeah, that's right. He didn't understand. You know, uh, Jesus' words are challenging here. Um, but I want to suggest that faith reasons in a different way. When we as Christians encounter these hard sayings of Jesus, we don't just stop short and say, oh my gosh, everything's crumbling, right? We press through the, the uh, apparent challenges to find resolution. And I think that um, we can find resolution um, in this passage if we just kind of go back to the biblical conception uh, of hate, but even before that, even, if, even before we investigate that, like, we could just think, you know, even though Jesus is saying, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, he also says that we're to love our enemies, right? And we're also supposed to, uh, to love God and love our neighbor, and that's kind of the summation of the whole law, right? So there has to be some kind of resolution to this tension, right? <clears throat> well, if we go back to um, the biblical conception of hate, it turns out that the word that's used here for hate is very closely related to the word uh, that's used for hate in the Old Testament as well. And there's some helpful examples in the Old Testament um, to help us kind of resolve this tension. And so I just kind of want to very briefly have an Old Testament sidebar. Can we do that? Can we just like dust off the Old Testament, turn over there, you know? All right, we're going to go all the way to Genesis, all the way to the beginning. And we're going to consider for just a few minutes the examples of uh, Jacob and Leah and Rachel. And as many of you know, the kind of iconic patriarchs of, of Israel in the Old Testament were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? So Jacob has this crafty uncle. Who knows his name? Laban. Laban, right? All of our elders are like dominating the question and answer right now. Greg, Jerry, you guys are just killing it. Um, <laughs> we have great elders here, I hope. Uh, so yeah, they have, he has this uncle Laban and you know, Jacob's dealing with the consequences of his own decisions and fallout in his family and so on and so forth. And you just kind of fast forward the Genesis narrative. Eventually, he's reconnected with his uncle Laban and his uncle Laban's land. And he wants to go to work for his uncle Laban. And so, like, they cut a deal, right? And his uncle Laban is happy to see him. So just kind of 
If you have your Bibles, I'm not going to put it up on the screen except for the per pertinent verses. But just follow along with me. I want to just breeze through Genesis 29. I'm going to start at verse 15. You with me? Okay, so the, the Genesis account tells us, Then Laban said to Jacob, when they were kind of reunited, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Some men can relate. All husbands here can relate, right? All husbands. <clears throat> then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah, and he brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female serp, blah, 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 blah. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. I always wonder how Laban pulled that off. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Very crafty, this Laban. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Fast forward a verse. So Jacob went into Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. You see that? Yeah. He loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was what? Oh, some of you said unloved. Some of you said hated. Turns out that the ESV uses the literal translation of the word here. Many of the English translations gloss it differently. They say unloved. But the word that's used here is hate. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Fast forward. She conceived again, bore a son, and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. <clears throat> So we see in this Old Testament account uh, of Jacob and Leah and Rachel that Jacob really loved Rachel, but that through Laban's kind of craftiness, he also ended up being wed to the firstborn, Leah. And we're told that, we're told that um, Leah recognizes that she was hated. But we're not really told, you know, that that Jacob hated her, we're told that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Are you with me? Now, I want to make sure you're tracking, like the moral of the story here, what I'm driving at, is if any of you have an uncle named Laban, whatever you do, don't cut a deal with him, okay? Just don't, don't do that. I'm kidding. The point I'm getting to is that there is a very legitimate usage of the word hate in the Old Testament that really means love less, to love less. Does that make sense? So uh, the word hate can be used um, 
in a kind of rhetorical sense, not a literal sense. Literal meaning like to actively hate, to actively revile, to actively detest. It can very legitimately be used in kind of a comparative sense, right? To love one more than the other, or for one to be loved and another to be unloved. Does that make sense? But we see this word hate and we freak out. Or people that don't study scripture, you know, or don't know the Bible or aren't believers especially see this and they freak out because hate is an ugly four-letter word in our culture, right? Like if anybody has anything to do with hate, our culture hates them. And so this is a serious matter. Like there's a reason I'm taking the time to resolve this tension for you because there is a biblical conception of hate that does not have anything to do with what our culture thinks of when our culture hears the word hate. In this case, it means to love less. It is used comparatively. There was actually a provision made in the Old Testament specifically for the case where a man had multiple wives, okay? Um, and in order not to condone that kind of particular scenario, but more to protect the women who are su subjected to it and to protect their offspring, actually in Deuteronomy chapter 21, we see that, that God says, if a man has two wives, the one loved and the other what? Guess what word is really used there? Hated. Yeah, the one loved and the other hated, but comparatively the one loved, the other unloved, and it goes on to describe that the offspring, the children of the unloved woman can't be treated any less fairly or can't be considered less deserving heirs of the children of the loved wife. Does that make sense? Okay, was that a fun sidebar? I'm glad that 10% of you think so. Back to verse 26. I'm going to keep moving. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, Jesus says, and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You see, Jesus is not commanding those who would come out of the crowd to follow him to actually actively hate their families in the sense that they actively revile them. Jesus, what Jesus is talking about is a radical transfer of primary relational allegiance in one's life. A radical, a seismic, a fundamental, a foundational transfer of primary relational allegiance. And this was scandalous in Jesus' day. Like, our culture is very different than their culture was 2,000 years ago. You see, Jesus is effectively laying out for all these people who are considering following him, considering, remember, entering into relationship with him. He's laying out for them the, the expected course of their life. You see, we live in a Western, secularized, individualistic society, but Jesus was speaking to people in an ancient society, a society that was patriarchal, a society that was very family-oriented, a society that concerned very much about, was very much concerned about honor and shame and bloodlines, um, where family was a huge deal, right? So when he says that someone must love less, they must hate their father and mother, their wife, their children, their their brothers and sisters, the sibling relationship in that culture was one of the most important relationships. I mean, he's, he's identifying the sphere of all the closest, most profound, most meaningful points of, of human relationship, right? And he's saying, if anyone's going to come to me, he's got to love me more. He's got to love them less. Our society's a little bit different today, you know, I mean... Some of us grew up in the 80s. I grew up in the 80s. You know, I like saying that when I'm up here um, for different reasons. The 80s was, you know, a great decade. Uh, but, you know, one of the things I remember about growing up in the 80s was just kind of like the suburban American experience. Uh, I remember, like, 
you know, I grew up in a neighborhood with a ton of kids. Everybody would come home from school. We'd all go out and play. You know, dads would come home from work, and sometimes, you know, we'd all have dinner at, you know, that family's house, or that family's, or my family's house, or whatever, you know, but we had all these kids and all these families. But what's interesting is, like, with the secularization of culture and the shift in values, you know, I can see all these kids that I once lived in the neighborhood, shared the neighborhood with on social media, and very few of them have families. You know what I mean? Because the things that many people hold dear today are not necessarily family relationships like 2,000 years ago or even, you know, in that great decade that we call the 80s. But many people, many of my friends, you know, who have grown up value things like career and value things like education. They value things like, you know, individualism and, and independence or they're very passionate about kind of their political or, or, or ethnic or social convictions. Right? I can see kind of a, a portrait of their lives on social media. What would Jesus call us to hate today? I think Jesus would call us to hate these kinds of things today. Those things that we hold so dear, those things that we look to for definition, markers of identity in our lives. You see, when Jesus was speaking to those people, he was laying out for them all those things that they would find their identity, all those relationships that they would find their meaning and value and purpose in the expected course of their life. And Jesus says, if somebody's going to come to me and be my disciple, he has to hate all these things. It's intense, right? Like we've resolved the tension with the word hate, but that's, these are still heavy words, are they not? They should hit us hard. They should challenge our hearts. We should be challenged in this moment to consider what are those things or those relationships that stand in the way of our discipleship to him? Are there things in our lives that we love more? Can we truly say as professing believers that we love X, Y, and Z less that we love him more. Jesus says, unless you love me more than all these relationships, then your very life, which you have built for yourself or are endeavoring to build for yourself, you cannot be my disciple. Cannot. It is a necessary condition. That is what logicians refer to as a necessary condition. If you deny that condition, if that condition is false, then it is impossible to be his disciple. It's necessary. One of my favorite commentators on Luke's gospel says that today one might associate with Christ simply because it is culturally appropriate rather than for true spiritual reasons. But this kind of a decision was impossible in the first century for Jesus' original audience, for those great crowds. If one chose to be associated with Jesus, one received a negative reaction often from within the home. And so that brings me to my first point about discipleship, church, and that is that discipleship to Jesus is exclusive. That's a bad word in our culture, but discipleship to Jesus is exclusive. And what I mean by that is following him must, it must it necessarily take absolute, unqualified priority over every other relationship. Jesus very clearly in this passage demands our complete loyalty. He demands total allegiance. It is not a casual commitment. It is an ultimate commitment, right? It's an eclipsing commitment. Any relationships that would stand in the way of our discipleship to him are to be subordinated or even, in extreme cases, left behind. I think that there is even more to this picture, though, than raw allegiance. Are you still with me? Think back to our little sidebar in the Old Testament. Think of Leah and Rachel. 
It's not the case that Jacob actually hated Leah, right? He loved her less. Or maybe she was uh, unloved, even though hate's the verb that's used there. But it's not also the case that Jacob was just compelled to love Rachel from some well of kind of raw conviction. It wasn't like he just said, like, oh, I'm just going to really love Rachel, right? And the consequence of that was that Leah was unloved. That was not the case. The, the, the word tells us that, that she was beautiful in form and appearance and that, that Jacob loved her and that he served seven years and it was like a day, you know, because he couldn't wait to be with her and it was, oh, finally, I love her. So he just loved her, right? And it made everything else, all the difficult circumstances seem like no big deal. All right, I'll walk through that because I am compelled by my love for this woman. I think that there's a sense uh, in which Jesus is saying, I must be your first love. It's not just that you should hate these things, i.e. love them less. It's that I must be your supreme affection. I must be your first love. Everybody said it was going to rain this morning. They were wrong. It rained this afternoon. So I was able to go out this morning, hang my USC flag up. Beat Notre Dame was a great day. Beat UCLA last week, great week. And I looked up in the sky, and the sky was very clear. Blue skies, minimal clouds, the sun was shining. That's why we pay so much to live in Southern California. Let me ask you a question. Were the stars out? Yeah. Yeah, they were out. They were out. Could I see the stars? No. Why? Because the sun overpowered them, right? The sun shone so bright that though the stars were out, brilliantly giving off their light, I could not see them because the light of the sun overpowered them. The proximity of the sun overpowered them. You see, I think Jesus is calling for us to love him like that, to love him in such a way that it overpowers, it eclipses all the other loves and affections in our lives. So Jesus calls the crowd to count the cost of entering into. We're just getting started. He's just getting warmed up. He's just talking about entering into relationship with him. Friends, Jesus calls disciples, not enthusiasts. Now, he doesn't leave it there. He's going he's to move on. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now he's talking about coming after him, right? First he was emphasizing what the cost of entering into relationship with him would be. Now he's emphasizing the cost of what continuing in relationship with him will be. So now you know what it looks like to enter into a relationship with me. Now let me talk to you about, let me talk to you about what, it, what the cost is going to be of walking, continuing in relationship with me. So Jesus is, I like to say he's the supreme interlocutor. Right? He's like the ultimate teacher. Nobody can foil him in an exchange. The religious leaders are always trying to catch, you know, catch him and trap him and discredit him, and they never can. He always turns things on their, their heads and defeats them. He could have chosen anything to describe what ongoing relationship with him looks like, but what does he choose? You can be confident. What does he choose? A cross, a cross right? He chooses a Roman cross. 
Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my own disciple. This echoes uh, from just a handful of chapters earlier in Luke chapter 9. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. What? Daily. Emphasizing the ongoing daily nature of what it means to follow him. Back to verse 27. So, ongoing relationship with him looks like this. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Do you think that the cross was a symbol of hope in Jesus' day? No, no. no, it wasn't. Now, I think that at first glance, like, we, we understand that, but I don't think we can totally sympathize with or totally relate with Jesus' first century audience because we've been kind of inoculated by, you know, years and years of Christian tradition and kind of uh, variations of Christianity. You know, there's Protestantism, there's multiple denominations, there's Catholicism. As a consequence of 2,000 years of Christianity, like, we see crosses all over the place, right? People wear crosses on, even people who are not believers wear crosses on necklaces or have crosses tattooed on themselves, right? So we've kind of been inoculated, but back in the first century, I think that, that the cross was an incredibly scandalous icon. Um, it, was, it was reprehensible. I mean, it, it represented kind of the most shameful kind of death. It represented the supreme Roman penalty. It represented the most um, heinous form of capital punishment. And so probably in that time, only the most twisted kind of person would even consider a kind of adorning themselves with a crucifix, with, with a cross as a necklace or, or to tattooing themselves with a cross. That would be like today um, wearing an electric chair on your necklace, right? I mean, how disturbing would that be if you walked in and, you know, you hear Justin's soothing voice leading us in worship and we get done with worship, you know, we have this little moment where we kind of meet and greet, and you turn to the person next to you, and there's like an electric chair just hanging there. That would be a little bit uncomfortable. What if there was an electric chair or like a guillotine, you know, or, yeah, or a noose, or, you know, or like a, a mushroom cloud? You'd think, wow, that's kind of disturbing. The, the, the cross was, was, it was a macabre icon. It evoked a sense of death and, and dread. So do you see, you begin to get a picture of how strong Jesus' language is in this passage. He's talking about what it means to follow him, taking up a cross, hating one's family. I mean, this was like subversive stuff that Jesus was saying. And so if he's talking about continuing with him and what that looks like, if he's talking about what ongoing relationship with him looks like, why would he use such a controversial icon, such a controversial symbol? Why would he... Use a Roman cross. Why do you think? Yeah, he knew he, was, he knew he was headed for a cross. I think it's because that he was headed for the cross. He would die on a cross. But I think it's also because everyone who witnessed Roman crucifixions in that time knew that to take up the cross meant to surrender all ambition and all sense of ownership or right to control one's own life. When you, when you pick up your cross and follow Jesus, you're no longer an independent person. Your, your will has been surrendered. You belong to Jesus. And, and bearing your cross is a metaphor which invokes as the dominant symbol of living that instrument of death by which he laid down his life for us, just as you said, Deanna. I mean, if you lived at that time and you ever saw a person carrying a cross, you knew that that was the absolute last thing that that person was going to do. They had their final marching orders. The remaining course of their life had been prescribed and it was, it was fixed. 
There was no going to the left. There was no going to the right. There was no going in reverse. They were bearing their cross, and that was the last thing that they were going to do. And Jesus is saying all of this. He's saying all of this. He's saying, take up your cross and follow me. As he himself is going on the costly road to Jerusalem, walking the narrow way perfectly ahead of us to bear his cross, to be our ultimate sacrifice, to be our sacrificial lamb, to pay for our sins. Amen? Amen. You see, Jesus never calls us to go where he has not first gone himself. I think our culture is often guilty of debasing Jesus' words here, right? Like how many times have you heard or maybe said, I'm probably guilty of saying it at times, oh, that situation I'm dealing with, just my cross to bear, right? Have you heard that? The cross is not merely a difficult circumstance to be endured. According to Jesus, it's a very way of life. It's a picture of being alive to, in relationship with, and following after Jesus. See, Jesus is saying, your life is no longer your own. If you come and follow me, if you're my disciple, your life belongs to me. It is totally and completely and exhaustively bound up in imitating and following me. Totally, exhaustively. You see, church, discipleship to Jesus is exhaustive. I don't mean it's exhausting. I mean, it is exhaustive. Following Jesus encompasses every area of life for every moment of life, even to the point of enduring persecution, which might result in the end of our life. I really like uh, Timothy Keller. He's a pastor in New York City. I think he's kind of like a modern-day C.S. Lewis. I read a lot of his stuff. Um, He's just so gifted at contextualizing the gospel Um, in demonstrating its ongoing pertinence and relevance, even in the midst of our kind of post-Christian secularized culture. But in teaching on this particular passage, he just boiled it right down to this. He said, if there are any ifs in your service to him, then you are not serving him at all. If there are any ifs in your service to him, then you're not serving him at all. You see, there's an all or nothingness about serving Jesus. Either you've taken up a cross or you haven't. Either you're carrying your cross or you're not. It's very black and white. It's very stark. It's very binary. And you don't pick up your cross. We don't pick up our cross for a few days and then kind of say, well, that felt kind of purifying, but I'm going to put it down and take a break for a few days and, you know, hang out with this person that's not a believer and, you know, have fun and then, you know, pick it up in another week. That's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not what relationship with him looks like. I've heard many sermons on discipleship. I've done a lot of reading on discipleship. I took a whole class on discipleship. as a New Testament elective in seminary. I really am passionate about this subject. And you can't really do any serious study of discipleship and not engage the writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. How many of you have heard of him? And many of you have probably heard kind of one of his um, most memorable quotes when he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. How many of you heard that? Is such a fantastic quote, such a poignant quote. But many of you probably haven't read the context or what he said in package around that quote. And so I've supplied it in your notes, and I just want to read it because it's a powerful depiction of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and to bear one's cross. He says, The cross is laid on every Christian. 
The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give, we give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world, but it is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. His, his point is very simply that following Jesus is serious business. You see, Jesus calls disciples, not enthusiasts. Now, Jesus has supplied two costs of discipleship, what it costs to enter into a relationship with him, what it costs to continue in a relationship with him. He's being fair up front. He is offering full disclosure to the great crowds which have accompanied him and were walking with him and who ultimately each and every one had to make a decision about him. And so now Jesus is going to transition and he's going to offer two analogies or metaphors or, or pictures or examples of what discipleship to him looks like. And so he starts with a building metaphor. Verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Jesus opens with, for which of you desiring? And his purpose in opening that way is to draw people in, to, to connect with them personally and individually, to connect with their will, with their desires, with their intentions. Hey, how many of you feel this way, right? That's what Jesus is doing. How many of each of you feel what I'm, what I'm saying? <clears throat> He's trying to connect with their personal intentions. And, and so he uses a building analogy to paint a picture for them, uh, uh, an analogy of, of building uh, a tower uh, that would, like, guard one's property or, or farm. Um, he's dealing with rural people. Um, so, but what he says is he says... Which of you would not first what? Sit down. Sit down and what? Count the cost. So, you know, when I was preparing this message, I was having all these thoughts because I really like love this passage and I'm thinking like, my gosh, my sermon's going to be like three hours long because there's so much I could say about this passage and I love this passage. I've studied this passage, I've written papers on this passage and thankfully my sermon will only be like an hour and a half long. Don't worry. <laughs> not really. I'm just kidding. Um, we're going downhill now, just so you know. But here's the thing. This, this is serious business that we're dealing with. These are hard sayings. These are serious matters that we're considering. It, it would not be wise of me just to get very excited and come up here and shotgun a sermon for you, right? Because when we need to get serious about something, when we need to think about something, we need to slow down, what do we do? We sit down. We just take a seat. Maybe you're dealing with somebody, a serious matter. You say, why don't you just come over here? just take a seat? Sometimes you know something good is not coming down the pipeline when you hear that, right? Sit down. Count the cost. Jesus is saying that discipleship to him is a serious matter. It's a serious decision. It's a serious commitment, demanding, requiring, warranting, serious consideration. 
Like if you were to build something and you had to build a foundation. Now Jesus is going to continue unpacking this example, but his emphasis is going to be on failing to count the cost. What does it look like when somebody kind of makes a a quick knee-jerk commitment to him that's spurious, it doesn't last? What does failed discipleship look like? The the, the emphasis is going to be on on failed entrance. Verse 32, and I'm sorry, I skipped a verse. Verse 29, otherwise when he has laid a foundation is not able to finish, all who see it begin to what? Mock him, saying this man began to build and was not able to finish. Nobody wants to announce to the world they couldn't begin, they couldn't complete what they began, right? And when we undertake any kind of major project, we have to sit down and count the cost and make sure that we actually will be sufficiently committed and equipped to complete what we started out, right? That's what Jesus is saying about following him, that we must carefully consider the cost of following him. But that when we do carefully consider, we sit down and count the cost, that we will continue in our discipleship for him. But this is also a necessary condition. If you do not sit down and carefully consider what it really means to follow him, the implications of following him, you will not last. You will not continue. You will not complete the course. He moves on and supplies a second example. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? <coughs> Excuse me. These people, right, like he's moving, zooming out from the realm of their everyday experience to the realm of the experience of those who would rule them or govern them or make decisions that would have consequences for their lives. He's talking about what kings think about, right? Very serious matter. What could be more serious than going to war? Jesus says, following me, considering following me is like considering going to war. The, the, The weight of the decision, the magnitude of the decision is like that decision that a king himself faces. And he supplies in this instance the example of a king who faces an uphill battle. He's outnumbered two to one. 10,000 men, 20,000 men. But again, we see Jesus use the same language. Sit down, deliberate. Sit down, count the cost. Just as prevailing in war requires thoroughgoing consideration and total dedication, so does discipleship to Jesus. Discipleship to Jesus is a serious matter. Jesus calls disciples, not enthusiasts. But he doesn't just simply conclude the analogy with this idea of counting the costs. He says, and if not, well, the other is yet a great way off. He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. A wise person sits down and considers what it means to follow Jesus. He also considers what it means not to follow Jesus. You see, God has supplied for us his terms of peace. And it just so happens that there is one term for peace. There is one opportunity to go to God and to be reconciled to him and to make peace with him. And that is Jesus, right? That is Jesus. And so we see the collision course of two kings on a collision course of war with each other that inexorably leads to conflict. And we will find ourselves on one side or the other, right? We either either are with him or against him. But God is gracious and he's good and he's merciful and he has supplied for us terms of peace that we could look 
out counting the cost and, and seeing how God's program is unfolding, seeing that, whoa, I don't stand a chance against God, but God has supplied terms for peace for me. And so I can go to him and I can receive peace. Is that a good thing? Yes. It's a good thing. So Jesus concludes. He winds it down. He offers a final concluding cost of following him. So therefore, therefore is a conclusion indicator. Any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. As if it weren't stark enough already, right? Like as if Jesus' words were not hard, challenging, difficult enough already. He just puts an exclamation point on all of it and says, any of you who does not renounce his nice cars, his college football, all Everything, the totality of everything that you have and hold dear cannot be my disciple. Unless you have an overpowering love for me such that you are willing and able and dare I say even eager to pronounce a formal farewell to all that your heart is attracted to, all the things that you own, you cannot be my disciple. See, the word that's translated renounce here actually refers to a, a formal farewell, a formal goodbye. I love all these things, but I love you so much more. So I bid you a formal goodbye because my life has now taken a different turn. I am following the great one, the only one. I have a master. I have a Lord. My life is totally, completely, and exhaustively bound up in following him. The Christian life is no casual fling. Discipleship to Jesus is expensive. Jesus calls us to surrender everything. Following him requires surrendering everything that we hold dear. And so Jesus is going to close this difficult teaching with a sobering warning now. He's communicated what it costs to follow him. This is what it will take. This is what it will cost for you to follow me. Let me give you two examples to illustrate this cost. But now Jesus is going to offer a warning. Let me warn you about failing. Let me warn you of the consequences. Verse 34, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He calls the people. Those of you who can hear me spiritually, those of you who, who God is opening your ears to hear the truth that I am speaking to you, hear me now. And he communicates this, this metaphor, this warning about salt and its saltiness and its saltiness being lost. You know, in 2,000 years ago, they didn't know chemistry like we know now. You know, we're reading this from like a post-scientific revolution mindset. And they didn't necessarily produce pure sodium chloride for table salt. You know, they didn't, but they, apparently you could, you know, buy minerals and salt was in it, but over time the sodium chloride could leach out of the minerals and so you could have essentially salt that had no saltiness. Does that make sense? And there was no utility associated, there was no value to it. Like if the sodium chloride leached out and it was no longer salty, you just tossed it because it was of no value. Does that make sense? Uh -huh. So what's Jesus' point? What is he saying? He's saying that there are great consequences to failing. You see, if one fails in their discipleship, if, if a disciple 
becomes not a disciple at some point, or somebody sets out to be a disciple, doesn't count the cost, they fail to count the cost, and they cling to the things of this world or the relationships of this world, there are eternal consequences. There are great consequences to failing. You see, Jesus is saying that failing might as well be viewed as refusing. And so that brings me to my last point. Discipleship to Jesus is eternal. Those who fail to give their all to Jesus end up like those who never give anything to Jesus. There are eternal implications. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Amen? Every person. That's what Jesus says. That's what Scripture says. But if you're overwhelmed by his words, if, if, you are, if you've been punched tonight by the difficulty of his saying, I want to offer you encouragement. We can dim the lights, and I want to invite Justin to come back up, Justin and Lisa. I want to kind of offer you one heading that, that didn't make it into your notes. So, you know, we've had the great consequences, but I, I want to offer you a great comfort, the great comfort. And that is that, you see, oftentimes we fail in our discipleship to Jesus, do we not? Oftentimes we fall short. Oftentimes we sin. Well, Jesus was despised for all the times that you have failed to love him more. And Jesus was hated for all the times that you failed to hate what gets in the way of walking with him. And Jesus hung on the cross to atone, to provide forgiveness for all the times that you failed to bear your cross in following him. Amen? And Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit, to fill us and to transform us and to equip us and to enable us to walk this costly road of discipleship to Him, the Christian life. And He's promised to be with us always, even to the end of the age. And so, church, I want to encourage you that Jesus has not just thrown difficult words at us and consequently abandoned us to failure. No, He has called us to faith. And he has called us to following and he will equip us and enable us to fulfill that calling and to walk by faith. But we must at the same time realize something very serious about his call to follow. And that is that he calls disciples, not enthusiasts. So dear Christians, I encourage you, I exhort you through the truth of the word of God tonight to press on in your discipleship to our Lord Jesus. Press on, dear Christians. Press on. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it confronts us right where we're at. We thank you that it pierces our hearts, Jesus. We thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth and to challenge us. And we thank you, Lord, that you do not leave us hanging, but you offer us help. We thank you that you did the hanging on the cross for us. And so, Jesus, I pray a prayer of rededication tonight. As one of your disciples, we pray together corporately as a band of your disciples, as this church called Hope Chapel, that you would reinvigorate our hearts, that we would take seriously yet again your call to discipleship, that we would consider all the things that our hearts hold dear, and if anything is in the way of our discipleship to you. We pray that your spirit would move in our hearts, that we would be excited about the gospel that we would be enthusiastic to share the gospel, that our lives would, would be demonstrations of the gospel. Father, cause us to walk in greater fidelity to, after your son. We pray that you be honored tonight, Jesus, in our lives, in our songs, in our coming and in our going. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Yeah.
Thank you, Pastor Mike. Let's have the elders come up to the front of the 